Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, that's me, ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. Madrid in Spain at the World Travel and Tourism Council's annual Global Summit. We actually broadcast from that summit every year around the world. Last year was Hainan Island, the year before Abu Dhabi, now Madrid. Every year when we do the World Travel and Tourism Council, uh, we try to deal with some of the cutting-edge issues in travel and tourism. This year's title is Disruption and Reinvention, and there's certainly been a lot of that. And we'll be talking about that throughout the show with many of our guests. But we also just acknowledged uh, just last December a 10-year anniversary of something that was truly disruptive and forced people to reinvent and redefine. It was the terrible natural disaster of the tsunami in 2004. Just a totally devastating natural disaster uh, that affected so many people in so many ways, other than just the lives lost in terms of, of just the way the world thinks and the way the world moves. And my next guest, uh, in the interest of full disclosure, is a personal friend, but also has become a beacon of hope as a result of that tsunami and what she has personally done and organized it with natural disasters and in the response to those natural disasters around the world. I call her a friend. Other people call her a supermodel, but I call her something else. It's not just about looking good. It's about doing good. And that, in, in that case, she has done exceptionally well with her Happy Hearts Foundation. Please welcome Petra Nemkova. How are you? Did I, was, was that a good enough introduction? <laughs> you 
you're too kind, Peter. It's, a, it's a joy to, to, to be here. The story that you tell and the actual beginnings and the evolution of your fund uh, started quite by accident because nothing like this was ever supposed to happen. And there you were on vacation and holiday in December of 2004, uh, the day after Christmas, I believe, uh, when that terrible tsunami ripped through Asia. And you, there you were uh, in Thailand when, when it hit. Yes. I actually um, never heard the word tsunami before. So when it, everything was happening, um, I had no idea what was happening. Um, and it was uh, definitely shock. It has impacted um, m millions of lives in many countries around the world. Um, uh, 250,000 lives have been lost. Um, one of them was my partner, who I was with there uh, on a vacation. So yes, that, that date, December 26, 2004, has really um, um, been life-changing for many, but I think it also made mark in, a, in the history of, of humanity. Um, most people, if you ask them, where were you that day, they remember exactly where they were and who they were with. So it was really powerful, but as you said, it's about um, learning what we can do differently, better, in terms of preparedness, readiness, medication, but also how we can react to natural disasters in the way that um, uh, the communities can go back on their legs faster. Um, and that's, I think, a very important subject because there is a huge lack of sustained response. And I've seen it um, after many natural disasters uh, with the foundation. We, we are working now in nine countries. Well, before you even tell me that, let's talk about the fact that here you are essentially left for dead. Um, yes not even expected to survive, you did survive, and the transformation that you went through mm -hmm. in terms of what can you do to help now. Yes. And what I find fascinating about what your foundation does is you know, there's an immediate response after a disaster where you have to get the first responders in there to address the immediate medical and housing needs of, of communities that have been fractured, have been torn apart. Uh, and it really is about community. And, and, and what you've done so brilliantly is realize that once the first responders leave, that's where the crisis really happens, mm -hmm. because now people are left to try to rebuild a community that they really can't do on their own. And what you've done is to look at that and say, okay, what is the building block here, mm -hmm. literally, of community? Mm -hmm. What's going to bring the community together and give them the strength to carry on and the ability uh, to carry on? And it all centers around the infrastructure known as the school. Yes. Because when, when, when buildings are destroyed, especially schools, this is what has always brought the community together it's, mm -hmm. it, in more ways than one. And so what you've done, and, and one of the reasons why we're doing this show today, is that you've gone out and said, okay, this is an immediate need, but it's a long-term need, and it's usually a forgotten need. Because, okay, we solved the immediate medical problem, we, 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 we've, we've helped the injured, we've, we've cleaned up the debris, but now what? And the answer to the now what is... We need to build a school. Yes. And that's what you've done. Yes, and you, you are explaining it so well because when, we, when I returned back to, to Thailand after I could walk again, we were focusing um, on learning what is the biggest need, number one, and what can have the biggest impact 
as you said, school is an incredible building block in bringing strength and hope to the community. It's the symbol of future, it's the symbol of hope. And even if the rest of the houses are still damaged, um, it gives the strength to the families to rebuild. But it, it, school works on many different levels. First of all, when you have a school to go to, children, uh, children they, can, they have a sense of normalcy, they can start healing from the trauma. Then with a quality school, they can get a better um, education, better job employment. When, uh, when children can go to school, both parents, they can start working and earning living to feed their children. Then, you, then again, that gives that strength to families to rebuild the, the community. And then you see families from other communities migrating to this community where because there's they a, have a school. They have a school, so it helps with the economy. You see, you see s stores opening up around the school and and the community which was um, uh, very damaged and um, unprivileged. It is becoming a flourishing a community because of school, and it's really amazing. And then it serves not just this generation but future generation. So the impact is so beautiful, and many times we don't even know the 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 ripple effects of that impact. But what's um, important is not just to rebuild the school, but is to rebuild it in a safe, disaster-proof way. Because with the increase of natural disasters, and many areas, they have recurring natural disasters, it's not just about building. It's building it in a way that it can protect children from future lost lives. Now, you've built how many schools now? <laughs> well, we had the dream to build one school in Thailand. And uh, fast forward to about eight and a half years later, we have built 113 schools in nine countries. And still going. And still going. We, ne next week, I'm opening 114th school with my team. So we, it's been an amazing adventure. And um, thanks to our partners, um, we like United and Chopard and Clinique, we've been able to really do more than we could ever imagine. This is your captain speaking. There is absolutely no cause for alarm. Head out on the highway. Looking for adventure. And whatever comes our way. If you've been following the news lately, especially in the area of the cruise ship industry, you're seeing a, a, a complete resurgence again in interest in cruising. Why? Well, people have money now. They want to spend it. Uh, they're looking for different itineraries. They're not just looking for the traditional seven-day Caribbean, one-port-per-hour cruise. Uh, other cruise lines are repositioning their entire fleets in certain parts of the world uh, to China for markets that have nothing to do with us. Uh, because you've got a burgeoning middle class, people who want to spend money and they want a cruise experience because they've been reading about it, guess where, in North American media. Joining me now, the, uh, the chairman of Silver Sea Cruises, my friend uh, Manfredi Lefebvre. How are you, sir? Great. So you heard my introduction. When you take a look at, 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 the, at the big players, the Carnivals and the Royal Caribbeans, they've made a, a rather dramatic decision to allocate some of their ships to parts of the world that have never been there for a market they didn't, that they didn't even know if it was going to materialize, right? Absolutely. Well, the name of the game today is how to address the new markets, the new exploding markets of Asia, where you have 3.5 billion people who are gradually uh, accessing lifestyle consuming and uh, travel, uh, and among that, uh, cruising. And they have money to spend. They want to spend it. Growing money and, and also the perception of spending money 
for lifestyle is increasing. Used to be that they would spend money for material goods. For material goods, and now they understand that once you have ten pairs of shoes, you can't wear them all, and uh, you start spending in lifestyle: restaurants, hotels, travel. And you know, when you talk about that luxury lifestyle, it's the same thing. I, I, I love watches. I'm a watch geek, but I had to come up to a point where I had to realize I'd reached the point of diminishing returns. I only have two wrists. How many watches can I own? So people are making decisions like that, but they're also it's, it's even more uh, dramatic in terms of the changes. When I was growing up, what did I want? I wanted a car. You, the kids grew up to want to have their first car. Talk to kids today. They don't want a car. They'll use a car if they need a car. They'll rent it from Zipcar for two hours, but they don't want to own the car. They want to own the experience. Absolutely. Well, in my experience of life, I've turned from being an owner of, uh, of things, objects, watches, cars, to being a consumer. I like to use things, so I don't uh, care for owning uh, things. I like to have uh, use them and more of everything I want to have experiences. So I'm, I think I'm the profile of what is the ideal target for a super sequel. Uh, All right, well, let's product. talk about your cruise line because you don't, have, you don't have 50 ships. You have how many? For the time being, only <laughs> eight. Yes, but, you, but, but you've distributed them geographically in different ways. You have your core group of ships that do very beautiful lifestyle-oriented trips to, to ports that really lend themselves to that. And then you've got your expedition ships. Well, we have two ships, classic fleet and expedition ships. The difference being fundamentally that expedition ships go to very remote destinations and they have not tenders, but have zodiacs to explore the, the sea around them. And uh, they're smaller ships, so, and they but, attract but a different kind of clientele. But your ships in general, Manfredi, are not 6,000 passenger ships. But even within my company, yeah. the expedition ships are smaller. Yeah. Today's uh, um, luxury cruise arrives up to 600, some say 700. To me, it's maximum 600 passengers. Uh, in the expedition, it's smaller because you need to have access for all the people to the zodiacs to go ashore and in areas where the access of passengers is restricted, like the polar zones. To me, the, the, one of the definitions of luxury is when you get rid of the symbol called the asterisk. Uh, your, your cruises are all-inclusive. And, and what I mean by that is you're not always going to your wallet to buy a drink or have an ice cream. Uh, whatever you're paying, it may be higher than other, other rates, but you're not going, you don't feel like you're being nickel and dimed. And I think we're seeing that change now in the industry as people are getting smart about it's not what it costs, it's what it's worth. It's about value. It's about value and it's also about convenience. So I think the fundamental thing is the, the perception that you're like in a club. You go and you sit around the bar and some people sit around the bar and everybody orders to drink. Right. Nobody wants to be stuck with the bill. Right. And so this facilitates people getting together and mingling and you don't have to think all the time, do I want a whiskey, don't I want a whiskey? If I order a whiskey, who's going to pay for the whiskey? If I got up, please let me sign the check. It facilitates uh, the, the life. And that's a convenience factor. So basically your entire advertising motto is cruise with us and nobody gets stuck with the check. <laughs> exactly. But that's a good model also. Nobody gets stuck and you don't have to decide all the time. Do I want to spend? Don't I want to spend? You've made your decision and you're not going to, you know, when you have uh, drinks included, you're not going to be charged three times the cost like it happens wherever you order a drink or a bottle of wine. And your consumption is interesting. People have a very interesting uh, psychological response to all-inclusive. The very first day they're at a resort or on a cruise ship, they might eat more than they, more, they would or they might drink more, but by the second day, no. 
they're more, you know... They... Well, this is a well-known profile. Riding along in my automobile My baby beside me at the wheel Cruising and playing the radio With no particular place to go My next guest is a, a regular on our show and an old friend. We go back many, many years, but stands in a pivotal position when it comes to world travel and tourism. He is basically, he runs the UN World Travel Organization, and his name is Taleb Rafai. How are you, sir? Thank you so much. Thank you. You and I have seen each other in capitals around the world for years, talking about the impact and the importance of travel and tourism. But it would seem to me that you're finally having some impact with world leaders and getting them to understand that power. You're absolutely correct. We do go a long way, and we did have an impact in the last few years. Not enough yet. We still need to keep going on. Just to give you an example, in the last three years, since 2011, we have met 73 presidents and prime ministers, heads of states and heads of governments, to try and raise awareness in mainstreaming tourism in their national agenda. And the impact has been noticed and seen all over the world, not just in the developed countries. I guess the, the connectivity that you're trying to achieve is to let them realize that this is not just you know, an avocation. This is serious bottom line revenue, jobs, stability um, that they otherwise could not get. Peter, it's the oil that never runs out. You get out of it as much as you put into it and even more. So uh, you're absolutely correct. Uh, I don't want to go into figures and numbers, but the tremendous ability of tourism to create jobs, uh, it's a people's industry, not only direct jobs, but drops down the value chain, indirect jobs, stimulate the economy, create pride in the, in the, in the, in the minds and in the hearts of people, improve the country's image, uh, you name it. It's all benefits if you manage it right. You know, you take a look at all the conflicts around the world, of which you know, we see this every day, and, it's, and some of it's not getting better. But if you take a look at some of the, the countries that were always considered difficult, you know, North Korea, Cuba, uh, and others, and you take a look at their GDP, and you take a look at what they stand to benefit from, you have, to, you have a conclusion that's almost you know, incontrovertible that what's going to save the North Korean economy in the end, in the end, it's got to be travel and tourism. What do they produce that the world consumes in volume? Answer, nothing, right? If you look at Cuba, people, oh, it's sugar and it's, and it's, and it's cigars. No, it's not. It's mm -hmm. travel and tourism. You're absolutely correct. Look, Peter, as a UN agency, our duty, our mission is to engage, even with countries that are difficult, as you, you may have uh, noted. And they're beginning to turn around and see that their engagement is going to be benefiting and reflecting itself well on, on, on the country and on the people. And you're absolutely correct. Uh, some of, many of these countries, even, even countries that assume and think and realize that they have natural assets and, and oil and, or, or minerals or mining or all of this, they're beginning to realize that this is not lasting, this is not sustainable. Tourism is. And then you take a look at a country like Egypt, which depends so much to put food on the table for their people, to create jobs uh, on travel and tourism. It's the one portfolio they don't ever want to mess with because 
that's their economy when you think about You're it. You're absolutely correct, absolutely correct. In my last meeting with the, with the president of Egypt, that's what he told me. He said, don't misunderstand me. This is one of the most important portfolios I've ever had. Well, I mean, look at that. 14, 15% of, of, uh, of Egypt's GDP is from travel and tourism. They get more if it's, income. If it's working. Well, it yeah. does work. Yeah. It does work. And that's what, what, uh, what, what's the important point, that even though there are challenges and there are some security measures that, that affect security incidents that happen every now and then, because there is a political will believing that tourism is important and because there is roots and traditions amongst the private sector and the businesses that tourism is there to stay, it bounces back quickly. It recovers so quickly. Look, I mean, Egypt's record is an example of how many times it was hit and how many more times it woke up again and said, no, I'm not giving up. Right. I mean, I, I tend to think, and, and I mean, you're Jordanian. We, we, you and I met when you were basically Minister of Tourism of Jordan. That's I correct. Uh, even though you're now based here in Madrid. And you look at the Palestinian situation in the Middle East, you'd have to think that if they were looking for a way to achieve peace, uh, a lasting peace, it has to be based on economics. And if you base it on economics, the obvious choice would be travel and tourism. Look, Peter, in 1995, I was in a different capacity. I wasn't Minister of Tourism. I was a diplomat based in Washington, D.C. And I take pride in saying that I was part of what led eventually to the peace treaty between Jordan and Israel. The minute that treaty was signed in 1994, 95, the first sector that bounced back, the first sector that reacted positively to this was travel and tourism. Immediately. The money flowed. Absolutely. Immediately you have you have a tour operator from Israel, a hotel owner in, in, in Bethlehem or in, in, in Jericho. And they're meeting. And a bus owner company in, in Jordan that came together in one to two months and they created a coalition. It's an industry that not only contributes to tourism but interacts to peace but interacts so positively when the first signs of, of uh, hope and optimism uh, are, uh, rise in the horizon. So that brings me back to our very first discussion, and that is, what's your biggest challenge right now? I it's mean, knowing that, you know, knowing that, what, you know, what can you do? You know, there, are, there are immediate challenges and there are long-term challenges. I think long-term challenges are clear. Long-term challenge will always be sustainability and the responsibility of this sector vis-a-vis -vis planet and people to make sure that this is turned to a force for good. This is a challenge that will continue to be with us because it's a management and political challenge. But the immediate challenges definitely can be summed up in two, maybe three maximum. One, which is rising up very quickly, which is security without doubt. How do we maintain security? while keeping travel friendly, easy, pleasant, and an experience that we keep remembering. And we can do that. We shouldn't compromise one for the sake of the other. But the second challenge is definitely the technological challenge. We're faced now with an ever-changing world that is driven by technology. But then it can connect to the first challenge sure. because we are underutilizing technology to make travel easy, safe, and pleasant. Toto? Feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Far 
flown to destination around the globe, but he's here with me now in Madrid, the president of the U.S. Travel Association, Roger Dow. How are you, sir? Hey, great to be here. Great to be in Madrid. Now, at the WTTC, it's a great group of, it's sort of like the G20 summit, if you will, um, of the major stakeholders in the industry. Uh, you have airlines, you have hotels, you have cruise lines, you have tour operators, you have countries themselves and their ministers, you have heads of state. King of Spain was here last night. And yet, everybody at dinner last night was talking about what? Open skies. Um, and the argument that the United States should change the rules because the United States Airlines, meaning Delta, United, and American to be in particular, um, feel that they're, they're at a competitive disadvantage because people can fly to the United States as often as they want. That's their argument. Well, their argument is that uh, the Gulf carriers have been... In particular. In particular, have been subsidized by their government, and no surprise, so have our carriers been subsidized by our government, but they ignore that, and uh, what they want to do is break open these agreements. There's 114 of them, Peter, called Open Skies, and it's a very slippery slope. We break open one agreement, then the next, and that gets to what does the United States stand for. But what does Open Skies mean? Explain What that. Open Skies means, it's very simple. It's two countries get together, let's say uh, Spain and the U.S., and they have an Open Skies agreement, which means that their carriers can fly to the U.S. To, any, our cities, carriers, to any cities in the U.S. To any city in the U.S., and our carriers can fly to any city in Spain and that the government can't restrict their ability to fly there and can't set prices. And that's it. It just it opens up the skies for travel between two countries. So it's different than the traditional bilateral agreement, which specifies how many seats you could have, how many routes you could have, with a certain amount of reciprocity. Right. It's very different. This, uh, the carriers can come in, and a lot of these carriers are bringing the, the new, uh, much larger planes with much, uh, more pe many more people. And when you look at the growth of international visitation to the United States, it's going to go up by 40% in the next five years. And the thing about open skies, and you mentioned it, but I think it bears repeating, is that once an open skies agreement is in place, it doesn't mean if I'm an airline like Delta, I have to fly to that country, but I have the option to fly, just like they have the option to fly to the United States. So... The thing that really raised its ugly head about a year ago, we did the story for CBS, was when the government of Abu Dhabi went to the United States um, Homeland Security folks and said, hey, can we build a customs facility in Abu Dhabi that would pre-clear U.S. passengers, not United States citizens per se, but anybody flying to the U.S. on our airlines, like they do in Canada, like they do in the Bahamas and Bermuda and in many other countries, Ireland, um, and we'll build it to your security specifications and, and we'll spend the money for it. And, of course, the United States said, sounds good to us because we don't spend the money. They spent all the money and built it. And then all the U.S. airlines, especially airlines like Delta, went nuts and said, hey, it's unfair. It's a disadvantage for us. You know, they're, they're, well, wait a minute. Not a single U.S. airline flies to Abu Dhabi. But they could under open skies, correct? That's correct, and it would make it easier for people to come to the U.S. and easier for travelers. I mean, travelers, if we could move to preclearance all over the world, it'd be great for America because you wouldn't have the big long lines at Kennedy and Miami and L.A. Well, you know, let's talk about preclearance because it's been around, people don't remember this, but it's been around since 1952, and it works. And everybody gets hung up on cost, but they don't understand how much it's worth when you actually start looking at the other costs that are ancillary and get kicked in there because of the delays caused when you don't have preclearance. So here's how preclearance works. You go, to you go to come home to the United States from Ireland. You actually clear U.S. Customs and Immigration in Ireland with a U.S. Customs and Immigration officer. Once you're cleared there, you get back on the plane or you board the plane, and when you land back in the U.S., you just go get your bags like anybody else. There's no customs. There's no long lines after an 11-hour flight or whatever it is. And if you're connecting, you just go to connect the flight, and your bags just connect. 
it saves so much money in terms of no misconnected passengers, no misconnected bags, fuel burn from airlines that are waiting to get cleared through customs. I mean, it all adds up. I can't imagine why we don't have preclearance in the really bigger chokehold airports, or the choke point, oh, chokehold, yeah, right. <laughs> well, they become chokehold. Yes. Uh, like London's Heathrow, Charles de Gaulle, uh, even Milan. It would be terrific, and it gives the uh, opportunity to look at people in their country before they leave or the country where they're departing. And you get the security done there before they even come to the United States. Right. The, the poor and it's person our that, security. Yes, and it's our people by our standards and our security. And the other thing you mentioned is, is missed flights. 20% of the people who make connections coming from international flight miss their connection. And, and a that, lot of it's because of those long customs It's lines. because of those long lines, and uh, then they miss their cruise, and then they've got to try and catch up with the cruise ship maybe some, two days later. It's a real mess and it's extremely costly to the airlines uh, when they miss those connections because they've got to put them on another flight. You've been so effective, Roger, with USTA in pushing the State Department to re-examine how we welcome visitors in this country and, and, and basically U.S. Customs and Border Patrol as well. You've been working so hard to get the visa wait times reduced, and they've been dramatically reduced, right? What are you coming up against in terms of preclearance? Against preclearance, uh, we're coming against our own carriers that don't want preclearance, especially in places where they don't have a dominant share of the market. And it's, it's a real mistake. Uh, as I, I keep telling our carriers, international travel to the U.S. is going to grow by 40 percent. There's more than enough to go around. Our carriers grow by 3 percent a year. They can't keep up with the demand. And not only that, there are fewer of them. I mean, we went from eight major carriers now down to four, right, if you include Southwest as a fourth carrier. Um, they've consolidated their capacity. They've consolidated their root structure. They're making more money now than they've ever made in the entire history of the airline business dating back to the Wright brothers. And they're worried about being at a competitive disadvantage. People want to come to the United States now. Why can't we make it easier for them? Right. And make no mistake, we want the U.S. carriers to be extremely profitable, healthy, and growing. No question about it. But not at the expense of the traveler. Uh, we're in a situation right now, you mentioned four airlines, but right now in 50 percent of the airports, one airline controls that airport. And once that one airline controls the airport, then they charge whatever they want. Uh, so they're also pushing to try and hold out low-cost carriers that want to come to the United States and make it very difficult for like people Norwegian. to get gates. Like Norwegian Air. Uh, yeah. A whole new set of passengers that would never be able to afford to come to the United States would come on Norwegian Air, but yet our own airlines are fighting them. I can't see the logic here because it's a win-win for the airlines right now. Uh, I'm angry because... When they had the opportunity to do so, in certain cases, the U.S. Justice Department never filed an antitrust case because the airlines always claimed that if we don't merge, we're each going to fail. And it was like, oh, my God, the sky is falling. And so everybody let them merge, and they let them consolidate. And now you're seeing so many cities in America talk about competitive disadvantage. How about just the total disadvantage because they don't have any air service? Let me put it in perspective. Out of the 100 busiest airports, biggest airports in the United States, 70 have less capacity than they had in 2008. 70. 70 percent of the airports, there are fewer seats. If you live in Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Memphis, Palm Springs, it's a real problem attracting businesses yeah. because they can't fly there, and it, it's hurtful to the U.S. economy. So we really need, I'm, I'm of the belief that a rising tide 
raises all boats. And we should, the U.S. airlines should be participating to try and get as big a share as they can and compete and grow their stature, not keep people out. Yeah, but you said the magic word, Roger, share. They're not interested in market share anymore. They're interested in yield. So that's why they're pulling out of all these other markets, because they have no need to compete anymore. If you're looking at Memphis and Cleveland and Cincinnati and, and Milwaukee and Kansas City and St. Louis, those are some of those 70% airports you mentioned that are way down in terms of service. They have a runway in St. Louis they don't even use anymore. It's a brand new runway. They built because they thought they were going to get bigger. And They're when, not. And when the airlines merged, if you go back to what they were saying five and six, seven years ago, it was the small regional communities are going to get more travel, more capacity, and it just no. hasn't happened. Delta Airlines completely closed Comair. I think if American Airlines could sell American Eagle tomorrow, they'd do it in a heartbeat. I don't think they, they like the commuter airlines anymore. It's just a big mess. You know what? Pick an airport that gives you pre-clearance. You'll have so much better time getting back to the United States with such less stress. Absolutely. If you are sitting next to a small child or someone who is acting like a small child, please do us all a favor and put on your mask first. Uh, my next guest, I, I can actually say he's been a regular on the show for quite some time. I've known him for really a long time. Long. T- thank you for that. Uh, he is the uh, the founder and the chairman and the chief executive officer of Abercrombie & Kent, otherwise known as Jeffrey Kent. How are you, sir? Very well, thank you, Peter, and good to see you. You know, we never actually see each other anymore in Nairobi, which is where we first met. I, uh, it's true, right? You're, you're all over the did. world. We, yes. That's, that's exactly where we were on a safari. That's right. And on the, on the safari that I went with you guys, you did a Hemingway tented safari, and it was unbelievable because talk about Lux. Uh, everybody had, I mean, I, I, I almost hesitate to say this because people are going to hate me for this, but I mean, everybody had their own butler, their own tent, their own hot water, hot water in the middle of the, of the Mara. It was unreal. Ice, martinis, I, I was caviar. Not, I was hoping we, you wouldn't say that. We probably didn't give you the caviar. No, you didn't, no. Everybody else got the caviar. <laughs> but let's talk about this in terms of, of the redefinition of the way people travel these days, especially with with uh, with A and K, because you've did you've done you know, you've done luxury trains. I remember doing a train with you guys called the Anna Karenina uh, that went for that. Do you remember that train? <laughs> I remember it so well. And, and, and the, the Anna Karenina it was a brilliant. Train. It was a brilliant train. Yeah. They, they found all these amazing train uh, cars that yeah. were on on rail sidings, never used, built for the czars. Yes. You found them. You put them in, and and you had it towed behind the old. Uh, yeah, right. uh, the old, all uh, the, 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 the main freighters, the main freighters that went yeah. right from Beijing to Berlin. It was such a good trip. And and yet the only thing I had to tell you was I get on the train and it suddenly hits me. Why would you call the train the Anna Karenina? Did you not read the book? <laughs> How did she die at the end? <laughs> you know, you know the, the designer called it that, and I didn't. I didn't have time to sort of double check it. And I asked that question yeah. halfway through. I'm reading the book, and I called my office and said, "Why do we call this train the Anna Karenina?" But you know, we did a good job also with the Royal Scotsman. I built yes. that train too. Well, the Royal Scotsman preceded that because yes, it's, it, I built that first, and then we came on with Anna right. Karenina second. Yeah. But now you've taken that same approach and you've uh, you've applied it to uh, to luxury jet travel. Well, you know, I think the early tent safari as you did it and, and the, the beauty of that was we could go all over Africa before there were hotels and we could stay anywhere we wanted so we'd go to all the parks which had no hotels and we went to Uganda, Murchison Falls um, uh, Queen Elizabeth Park all over so 
I said, in this modern day, what can I do to take people to the, all the places you can't get to, like Easter, to easily, Easter Island, Samoa, Papua New Guinea, Sri Lanka, Madagascar, Mongolia. And I had my map. I always had this map in my office, which when I'm bored, you know, which is not very often. But I look at the maps, ah, oh, I'd love to do this. But you know what? what you, you bring up an interesting point. I have a map in my office. In yes. fact, it covers an entire wall of Me my too. office. Me too. And it's not about getting bored. I get, I, I get inspired because I look at that map and I realize what we take for granted and, or what we have completely ignored. For example, if you look at the map of North America, we've, we've heard about the Great Lakes. You know, you have all Lake Michigan, Lake Erie, right? Okay, I get that. But then look at the map again, and there's a body of water that nobody even realizes is there, which is five times larger than any of the Great Lakes. It's called Hudson Bay. Yes. And you're... Oh my God! Look at the size of this, and yes. and nobody's been there. I know, you know. But that's what I and I think, I get inspiration. I have a have an espresso, and I look at this, and I think, what am I going to do next? I've done trains, and suddenly hit me. Why don't I personalize a, a beautiful aircraft, put in fifty first class seats, have them all made in Italy, like as, that, as you would, as I would with yes. burnished walnut, like in the Bentley, <laughs> right? so it's all beautiful. Put in the best food, the best chefs, the best caviar, literally everything the best. Yeah, I don't, Eight, want, I don't want that middle-class caviar. I want yeah. the best caviar. $800 bottle of wine and all that. And then why didn't I do what I did on the tent safari? You're right. That was what I envisaged. So we took this plane, and we did a trip last November. We left from Miami, and we went to, first of all, the upper Amazon above Peru, you know, in yes, Peru. of course. And we, when we caught anacondas, put them back again, of course, but, you know, crocodiles. We then went to Easter Island. We then went on to Papua New Guinea, up in the highlands, see the Wigman. Uh, have you done half of these trips? I have, sea yes. Pig, sea Pig Valley. Yeah. Then on to Sri Lanka. Oh, just, in between, went to Komodo Island. Have you ever seen a Komodo of course, dragon? Of course. He has seen them. I this have. is going to be difficult. Okay, then you've been to Sri Lanka? Yes, I have. And you've climbed Sigaria? For, for example, for those people who've never seen the Komodo dragon, go back and, and, yes. and Netflix the movie My Freshman Year with, with, with uh, Marlon Brando and the Komodo dragon, you'll see. But go ahead, yeah. So then we, Sigaria, we're in Madagascar? Yes, Madagascar, the fourth largest island in the world. Fourth largest island and has lemurs, which yes. don't live anywhere Where else. else? Yeah. Oh, God, this is going to be a tough quiz. Okay. No, I'm going to do it okay. okay. And so I plan, I plan the next one, which is leaving in May, which has already got four seats left out of 50. It was launched two weeks ago. Uh, 46 have gone, there are four seats left. Wow. And that goes Easter Island, Solomon Islands. Have you been to Solomon Islands? I, uh, yes, it's Guadalcanal. Oh my God, okay. And then we're going to Rangiroa to dive for three days. Have you been to Rangiroa, I French have. Polynesia? Yes. Wow, okay. Have you been to Mongolia? As I, I have. Have you been down in the Gobi Desert? I have not. Okay, have you seen the Nadem Festival? No. Okay, well, you, you got me, Jeffrey, okay. No, okay, the Nadem Festival is another time of year, so, so I planned, I will actually pay for one, have my own private Nadem Festival in the <laughs> Gobi Desert. How about that? Not bad. And then we go to Samarkand, you've been to Samarkand. Yeah. And then we go to Greenland. I, oh, Greenland is amazing. We've actually broadcast this show from Greenland, from wow. Nook. Wow. And in fact, it was a satellite broadcast, probably the best reception and the clearest signal we've ever had because of where Greenland is. Once again, go look at the map. You want to see something that's huge and massive. I, I mean, it's so large, Greenland. It is so large. And it is, and it is, what? and it is what? the largest island in the world. It is, yes, thank you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I know you're, you're trying to help me there, I know, I know. But you, know, you mentioned Easter Island a couple of times. There's a little-known airplane trip, speaking of airplane trips, that was done by Lon Chile. They still do it. Yeah. It's a round-the-world trip around the southern hemisphere. So it starts in Santiago, Chile, goes to Easter Island, ends up in, in Sydney. It just mm. stays south all, all the way the around. South. It's amazing. It's amazing. And, and Tahiti. So it goes Sydney, Tahiti, 
Easter Island, Santiago. Wow. It's a, it's a cool thing. But you've you got to get off along the way. You just don't stay on the plane. But, you know, the amazing thing about this trip was you'd have thought, and it took 23 days, and I decided to go on it myself, actually, because I thought, you know, I just want to make sure. It well, was it was the caviar and the burnished walnut. Come on. Why wouldn't I, right? Of course, yeah. <laughs> but it was amazing. Not, we didn't have one squabble, one argument from anybody for 23 days. Because why? Because the, the alcohol. No. <laughs> the experience outweighed everything. And yeah. for once in my lifetime, people came for what I wanted with the experience. Not to grumble about the water's not hot, or this is not right, or breakfast was not on time. There was no whining. The, 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 not, not, a, not a moment of a whine. And it was so nice that everybody loved the experience, which is what I'm all about, as you know. Well, what we're seeing now, and you, obviously you can echo this, is that you can say what you want about the economies of the world or the, or the comeback of the economies of the world, but the thing that comes back the first is travel because people do not want to deny themselves those experiences. No, and also, uh, I met somebody on a beach the other day, actually down in, um, in, in Brazil at uh, Florianopolis, where I have a new home. Beautiful. Florianopolis, by the way, was, was where we actually had the World Travel and Tourism Council a couple of years exactly. ago. And I had, never, I had not been down there. Of course, I've been throughout Brazil, but never that part of Brazil. What an amazing place. And I just bought a house, you know, my wife's Brazilian, yes. on, on Jurere Beach. So it's a beautiful home right on the beach. And it's so nice. I like walking my dogs. And somebody stopped me and said, I think I know you. I said, really? I don't know. He said, no, something to do with travel. And I said, yeah. I said, I'm Abercrombie Kid. He said, exactly. My parents tell me that you're the only company they go with, all right, and I go with them, where they spend money and we get richer when we get back. We feel richer when we come back <laughs> because they, they buy an experience. I love it. Nothing that... A nice promotional statement. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> no, no, I'm not done with you yet. Oh, no, okay. no, I am not done with you yet. <laughs> okay. Here we are in Madrid for the WTTC, yes. something that you've been involved in since day one. Uh, what changes are you By seeing? By the way, 25 years. I know, I know. Well, I, you and I go back almost that long with WTTC. Mm -hmm. I remember starting in Vancouver. We had a meeting in Vancouver, and then from then on. I think my first, yeah, my first one was with uh, Jim Robinson and Colin Marshall, who brought me Colin in. Marshall from British Airways, Jim Robinson from American Express. Exactly, and the American Airlines, uh, Dick Crandall. Right, Bob Crandall. Bob Crandall, yes. Th thank you, yes. Bob Crandall. Yes, uh, he is still he is the most, one, probably the most amazing airline executive I've ever met. The best ever. Yeah. In, in, and there are people, and he was hard. He was a hard on everybody. But you know what, you go to, the, uh, you got, you talk to the employees of American Airlines, mm. the long-standing pilots or flight attendants, they miss him. He was the best. Yeah. Him and Colin Marshall. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They, they were the best. But what do you see as a, as a major change happening in travel right now? Well, I think, you know, I mean, <laughs> you, know, you sit in all the, in all the WTTC meetings, and the biggest change everybody talks about all the time is social media. What's it doing? It's a disruptor. It's, it's, <clears throat> it's going to wreck our travel. And I think, but you have to be very, as came out yesterday, you have to be very, very nimble. Yes. And so some people get nimble by going downwards, cutting prices, doing this, doing more. I get nimble by going upwards. You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. 
Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.